Hosea chapter 11, and uh, we've been in uh, for a long time now looking at these passages of Scripture that are uh, fairly unpleasant, if truth be told, to look at. They're all about the judgment of God, and people don't enjoy that sort of thing. Well, this week we come out to something a little more pleasant. Chapter 11 of Hosea really is the climax of the book, in a sense. And in this chapter, we come to the culmination of the theme that we started early in the book. Remember, way back when, the first three chapters of the book, we were dealing with the marriage of Hosea to Gomer. And Hosea was commanded to marry this woman who would be unfaithful to him. And uh, still he was instructed by God to love this woman. And he even apparently goes and buys her, redeems her out of slavery because he loves her so much. And uh, over the last several chapters, from chapter 4 to chapter 10, we've been seeing God's complaint against His people of Israel because Israel was pictured in the Bible as God's wife. And so just as Hosea had a very valid complaint against Gomer, God had a complaint against Israel because He had made a covenant with them out in the wilderness at Mount Sinai, and they'd violated all the terms of the covenant. So he's got reason to put her away, and uh, he's got a valid reason to do that. They have broken his covenant every way you can imagine. But in chapter 11, this is where the tide sort of turns, and uh, the, the key verse of the chapter really is verse 8. We'll get there uh, well sooner or later. It says, How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adma? How shall I set thee as Zeboim? Mine heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. And uh, he expresses this idea that even though this nation has hurt him so deeply, he can't give her up. He says he still loves her. And he loves of his own choice. Remember back there in chapter 3, when Hosea was supposed to love Gomer, that was a commandment from God to go love. And uh, that's an important thing that we need to understand about real Bible love before we get into the chapter. The kind of love that God commands is not something that just happens to you or that you fall into. It's something you choose. You do it on purpose, and you have to choose to do it. If God didn't love us out of his own choice, he surely wouldn't love us for what we are. And thank God he chooses in his sovereign grace to love us. Well, the, I said verse 8 is sort of the key verse of the chapter, but verse 1 is a very important verse, and we're going to have to spend quite a bit of time on this verse because it is a verse that is uh, quoted in the New Testament as a prophecy of Messiah. And it may seem a little confusing what the connection is between Hosea and the prophecy of Jesus given in the book of Matthew. And so we want to spend a little time to try to explore what that's all about. He says this, When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Now, before we get to the uh, the New Testament prophecy in the book of Matthew, uh, let's take a little time to understand what the context of this verse is in this book. You remember back in chapter 9, God had said a couple of times things about Ephraim returning to Egypt. And verse 3 of chapter 9, it said, They shall not dwell in the Lord's land, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean things in Assyria. And uh, in verse 6, For lo, they are gone because of destruction. Egypt shall gather them up. Memphis shall bury them. And so there's this indication about going back to Egypt. At the end of chapter 8, in verse 13, the end of the verse, it says, They shall return to Egypt. Now, we mentioned at the time, and... I didn't go into the full depth of it because I was saving it for now because there's there's a twist, (laughs) as it turns out, to the story. Uh, But we mentioned at the time that Ephraim, the northern kingdom, doesn't actually go back into Egypt, uh, not in any great numbers at least. There may have been a stray person here and there, you know. Uh, Some in the southern kingdom did. Later on, after the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom, there were some who of the southern kingdom who went into Egypt against the commandment of God. And Jeremiah got caught up in that whole mess, but that's another story for another time. 
but uh, the northern kingdom by and large didn't. And so we mentioned when we looked at those passages that there is a sense in which it's a, uh, a figure or a metaphor. It's not that they're actually going to return physically to Egypt, but they're going to go back into bondage like they were in Egypt. Now, there's more to the story, <laughs> okay? And that's what we're going to come to here in chapter 11. He remembers, God does, the origin of this nation of Israel. And we've talked about this some before, but let me give just the short version of the story again. Israel uh, really becomes a nation in Egypt. And that's kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? That you have a nation in a sense that is birthed in captivity. Now, of course, when God gave the promise of this great nation or the seed to Abraham, Abraham was a free man at the time. He has a son, Isaac, who's a free man. Isaac has a son, Jacob, who is more or less a free man. He got into some little problems with Laban and so on. But he's more or less a free man. And uh, Jacob, of course, is the one who, whom God renamed Israel, uh, which means a prince with God or a prince of God. And so the whole nation of Israel has as its father Abraham and Isaac, but especially Jacob. Sometimes the nation is referred to as Jacob or it's referred to as Israel. And the names of the 12 tribes are the names of Jacob's sons. Well, mostly. Uh, Joseph had a double portion, and so his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which would be Jacob's grandsons, are the tribes. But anyway, the, the tribes come from him. That's the He's the patriarch of the nation. Now, you remember the story about how Joseph's brethren sold him into slavery. And uh, they go down to, he's taken down to Egypt, and of course there's a famine in the land. His brethren have to go down to Egypt to get corn. By that time, God has miraculously placed Joseph in a position where he's the one who is able to sell them the corn. He's essentially Pharaoh's prime minister by that time, his second in command. And they end up moving down there, the whole family does. But they're not really a nation at that time. When they come down there, there's only about 70 of them. It's more of a large tribe or a clan or something like that, you call it. An extended family, really, is all it is. And uh, it's down in Egypt that they began to multiply over a span of 400-plus years to the point that they become a great nation. Uh, with We don't have an exact count. We have just over 600,000 men of fighting age when they come out of the land. So probably a good guess would be somewhere between two or two to six million people, somewhere in that range, you know, altogether. And uh, so they become a nation down there in Egypt. And so God says when Israel was a child, that's sort of what they are in Egypt, right? That's where it grows into a nation. Then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Now, we mentioned something at the end of the class last week, uh, well, actually after class, when somebody asked a question about it, I think, uh, or mentioned something about this, we have a change in the metaphor here, right? <laughs> it's sort of a mixed metaphor. Well, God can use a mixed metaphor if he wants, and there's a purpose behind it. All through the book, we've been picturing Israel as the wife of Jehovah, but now we call him the son. Now, we mentioned something about that last week after class, that that has something pretty powerful to do with the message of how much God loves this people. Because, uh, now I know this is not always true, and especially in these days when we have people who are without natural affection, but generally speaking with people who are uh, <laughs> reasonably decent moral people, it's, it's pretty much impossible to ever really hate your children, isn't it? You can get mad at them. <laughs> you can get really mad at them sometimes, but you'll never hate them because they're yours. They're a part of you. And as a general rule, it's, it's much easier to come to hate your spouse than it is your children, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's real talk, right? You know, this, this happens. We see this happen pretty, pretty often in this world. And uh, because the child is part of you. Now, this is how he refers to Israel as this thing that is part of him. And uh, we have this change in here that he calls him a son and refers to him as him now 
instead of them or her or the nation or, or whatever. It's, it's him. It's this son. And uh, so the idea there is that the reason they're not in Egypt anymore, the reason they're not there in bondage is because he called them out of that land. And uh, then he's talking about sending them back down to Egypt. Now we're going to see here in a minute that he's not going to send them back to Egypt. He's never going to send them back to Egypt because once he's... Egypt, by the way, in the Bible is a great type or picture of the world. And once God takes somebody out of the world, he's not going to send them back. It's just the same thing with Judah, the southern kingdom later on when they were conquered. Some of them went back to Egypt against the commandment of God, but he commanded them not to go back there. And sometimes Christian people will get back into worldly things sometimes, but if they do, it's against the commandment of God, right? But uh, he says, I called my son out of Egypt. And so we have this picture here of how much he loves his people. And, and you see how his thoughts of the past, his past dealings with Israel are, uh, are calling to mind his great love for the people. And uh, does anybody remember why it is that God chose this people? Why does he choose Jacob? If you remember the story about Jacob and Esau, right? Uh, Isaac has these two sons. They're, they're twin boys, Jacob and Esau. I'm reminding you of this a little bit because it's going to come up in the next chapter, okay? <laughs> that, the, that he has these two sons. That, um, he had promised Abraham that yeah. he would be the leader of a great nation and it would be through his lineage. It's, and then you had the two sons, the twins, that one was born and the other one was holding on to the heel that's right. of the lead ones. Yep. And eventually, the younger one stole the birthright of the older one. Yeah, he, he, uh, he, he stole the blessing. He actually bought the birthright, and then he stole the blessing. But uh, So the younger one uh, is grasping at the heel of the elder one as they come out of the womb. And this is going to come back in the next chapter. Um, but this one named Jacob is chosen by God. I think I've mentioned this here before. You, you have this, you have this interesting thing in the pattern of these patriarchs of Israel that ordinarily in the Old Testament and in the Middle Eastern cultures, the elder son had the birthright, the blessing. They had to place a special privilege and they even got a double portion of the inheritance. But you have this strange pattern that takes place, uh, in these people, Abram was not the eldest son in his family. And then, of course, his son Isaac, who was the chosen one, is actually not Abraham's oldest son. They had that son Ishmael first. So Isaac's next in line. Isaac and Rebekah have these uh, twins, and Esau is the eldest. He's the one born first, but Jacob becomes the chosen one. And then Jacob has children, and the one who is sort of the outstanding one among his children is Joseph, who is not the eldest among his children. Right. And uh, so then we have Joseph has Ephraim and Manasseh, and when Jacob is administering his blessings, remember there's a story where he switches his right and left hand and gives the greater blessing to the younger one there. And uh, so we have this, this pattern where God is continually choosing the younger one. Now, the question is, why does, why does God select Jacob over Esau? And we've looked at this before, but I want to look at it again in the book of Romans, chapter 9. This is a reason that probably most people wouldn't expect at all. But it says there, let me start in verse 10 of Romans, chapter 9. It says, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Wow. Now, there's the great question. And the answer... The, the answer to the question is, Jacob was chosen rather than Esau because God chose him, and that's God's business and not yours, okay? Esau, he really 
didn't no, no, Esau, Esau didn't think much of his birthright, and Esau was not a good man. Uh, and they're chosen before they're even born. So Esau was not a good man, but then, truth be told, for most of his life, Jacob was not a very good man either. He did a lot of lying and a lot of cheating and a lot of tricking. And so I want you to notice there, it says specifically that this is done, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. Now you'll hear people say sometimes that God foresaw that Jacob would be the good one and Esau would be the bad one, but that's not what that verse says. It says it's not of works, but of him that calleth. Now there are people who will get very upset with me for saying that because uh, they'll push this further than it ought to go into the matter of uh, salvation in our day. And you've got to watch that. Uh, There are people who teach things like irresistible grace and things like that, that God forces people to be saved and there is no personal responsibility of a choice. And that contradicts a lot of Scripture. And we've taught on that before and I won't get into all that. But this is just talking about Jacob and Esau right here, right? And God gets to choose whom He wants to. And the choice was based entirely on God's will. Now, it's important for us to understand that God has the right to do that. And like I've taught here before, I don't, uh, I don't teach the doctrine of irresistible grace because I don't think it comes into alignment with the Scripture. Uh, the Scripture teaches, harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation. Irresistible grace, that, that, that's connected with the doctrine that uh, God saves people, He has certain people He's going to save, and He saves them whether they like it or not. Or whether, that, that, uh, that basically, it's, it's involved with sort of the, the full hyper-Calvinist kind of movement that you've got people that are uh, predetermined to be saved, and that God is, if you're predetermined to be saved, then God is going to uh, force His grace upon you whether you want it or not. And... Uh, that's, that's not what we're talking about here. Like I said, the Scripture says, harden not your hearts, as in the day of provocation. So I assume if it's possible to harden your own heart, then it's possible to resist grace. But what we are saying is this, that if God wanted to do it that way, He could. Because He's God. He can do it any way He wants. And uh, there's something more to this, and it's this. God knew before He ever created the world or before any of these people were ever born, He already had a plan of exactly the lineage that was going to be brought to bear to bring the Messiah along. And it had to happen a certain way. Now, if we started down the road of everything that's involved with the genealogy of Christ and why it had to have certain ways, we'd have a long time before we ever got back to Hosea. But there is... One thing I want to look at here that's pretty important because this, this brings us actually back to the prophecy that's connected with our verse in Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 about his son being called out of Egypt. So we turn now to the book of Matthew chapter 2. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 2. You, are, I'm sure, are all familiar with the story about the wise men that come to visit Jesus. And uh, I'm pretty pleased with myself that I managed to get this far before Christmas, right? <laughs> I mean, we, we, we've, been, <laughs> we, we've been moving at a pretty good pace, you know. <laughs> but uh, the, the wise men, of course, come to visit the Messiah. They saw his star, remember, in the east. They come to visit him. They stop by and visit Herod first, not knowing that uh, Jesus wasn't Herod's son, actually. They thought they'd co- go to the palace and find the king. That's where you'd find a prince born, right? And uh, he's not there. So uh, Herod calls the, wife, or the, the scribes the, to come and uh, uh, look at the prophecy of where Jesus should be born. And they know enough to know the prophecy that he'd be born in Bethlehem. So they start off for Bethlehem, and then the star leads them to the place where the Lord lay. And uh, they're warned not to go back to Herod because Herod had certainly ill will toward Messiah. Now, you'll notice how all these parallels work here. Remember when Moses was born. Remember we're talking about God calling his son out of Egypt. Remember when Moses was born, the Pharaoh at the time 
uh, instructed the, um, the, the midwives to kill all the male Hebrew babies because he was afraid of the power that they would accumulate. He was afraid that there would be a rebellion, and of course Moses was protected from that. Well, we have this parallel now here where Herod wants to have these babies killed because he's afraid that one of them will become the king. And uh, so in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 2, it says, When they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and departed into Egypt. And that's a rather interesting thing for him to do, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. He, he uh, why Egypt? That's a long way to go. He didn't really have to go that far to get out of Herod's jurisdiction. He goes there because it's a fulfillment of a prophecy, and says in verse fifteen, "And was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son." And this is one of those places where somebody might be scratching their head saying, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Back there in Hosea, that didn't sound like a messianic prophecy at the time, did it? As a matter of fact, I don't think any of us reading Hosea before the birth of Christ would have had any notion at all that when it said, out of Egypt have I called my son, that he was talking about Messiah. It seems like it's just talking about the nation having been brought out of Egypt. And now here in Matthew we find out that it is a prophecy of the fact that when Messiah was born, he would go into Egypt a while and be called out of Egypt. Now, for the most part, when the way commentators will deal with that is with a simple explanation, and there is something to this, there are, that there are a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament that have a sort of a double sense or a double meaning. They have an immediate local application, but they also refer to something further down the line. And that is the case here in a sense. But I would suggest that there's actually something deeper to this. Um, first of all, the Lord in taking this journey is in a sense identifying himself with his people, isn't he? The same journey that Moses and his people took, Messiah is now taking. But we come back, and I can't quite shake this off, the strange fact that there in Hosea, he doesn't say in that first verse that he's called his wife or his people, but he changes to talking about his son. And with that in mind, I want to go back to a passage of Scripture we looked at way a long time ago when we were in the book of Hebrews that sets down an interesting principle about how God reckons genealogy and human descent and all that sort of thing, and and it is uh, something that is out of line, really, with the way we normally think about things, but evidently God thinks about things this way. And it's in Hebrews chapter 7, there where we were dealing with Melchizedek. Remember that passage? And why Melchizedek was a greater priest than Aaron, or why the order of Melchizedek is higher than the Levitical priesthood. And there are several reasons given there. But one has to do with the fact that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And the argument there, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4 says, Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham, and blessed him that had the promises." And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them of whom it is witness that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also who receiveth tithes paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. And so the principle there is that even though Levi or any of his descendants, Aaron or any of those people hadn't been born, when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, Yet because they are Abraham's seed, or they are his physical descendants, they were reckoned to have paid tithes to Melchizedek too, because they were his seed there in his loins when, when he did it. That's what it says there in verse 10, for he was yet in the loins of his father. Now, if God reckons things that way, what that means is, as strange as this may sound, 
that uh, when God led Moses to lead the people out of Egypt, Jesus came with them that time. Because he's he's in the line, right? <laughs> he's descended from those people. From there were there, if you could trace out the line of Judah all the way back to then, you would find that he was there, present with them. And so that raises a really, really interesting application to what's going on in Hosea chapter 1, doesn't it? And I want you to think about this. When he's talking about how much he loves this nation, he says, when Israel was a child, I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Well, when he called Israel out of Egypt, he wasn't just calling a nation. He was Now, we have to be careful here because somebody could take this doctrine and skew it way beyond really what it means. But on the human side or the biological side, according to God's reckoning, Jesus was present with them when they left Egypt. Well, Mark, when he's talking about his son, he's talking about Jesus. Then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think that that's uh, that's a thing that uh, nobody in Hosea's day would have understood. That's what he's talking about, right? <laughs> but uh, based on what God seems to indicate about how genealogy works in His mind or his reckoning, then I think we could fairly say that when he called the nation of Israel out of Egypt, he was calling Jesus out of Egypt. Now that's important because you've got to understand that one of the great reasons, maybe even the greatest reason why God calls this nation to start with is to bring Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, into existence. And uh, let me put another passage of Scripture together with that that we've looked at before in Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 12, uh, John is shown a vision of a woman. Verse 1, There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars, and she being with child cried, travailing in birth, and pain to be delivered. And uh, verse 5 it says, And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations, with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. And of course, that's the woman there is a picture of Israel. We know that from the connections with the vision, uh, the dream that Joseph had about the sun and the moon, and he saw 11 stars. Now we see 12 stars, right? Because it's all 12 tribes of Israel. She is this woman, and Christ, the Messiah, the one who's to rule all nations with a rod of iron, is her son. Now, I want you to think about this, about the love that God has for this nation. This is not just any random nation. This is the nation that is to be the mother of his only begotten son. And when you put that in your mind, you start to understand why this love is so powerful and so unbreakable, isn't it? You understand that if God cut off the nation of Israel altogether prior to Messiah coming, there would be no Messiah. And His purpose in fulfilling the plan of providing salvation for all humanity would have been thwarted. Now, somebody will say, well, He didn't come out of Ephraim. Why is He talking about Ephraim? Well, there in Revelation, the woman had all 12 stars, right? All 12 tribes. And God meant to keep that thing together as a unity. So the purpose in loving Israel so much is not just in that nation, but in what that nation means to all of humanity. And remember, the last part of his promise to Abraham, and the one that's most important to us, is that in him all nations would be blessed. So it's not just that he loves Israel, it's that he loves the whole world. He loves the whole world through Israel, right? Now, when you think about what this means for us, this is such a powerful thing because what's our situation in the church now as compared to what the Jew was in? Well, the Jew, in a sense, the Israel in the Old Testament days, Messiah was in them, right? <laughs> in the loins of them, he's... They bring Messiah forth. And God loves them because He chooses. He loves them because His Son is in them. But on our side of the equation, after the cross, 
Messiah is not in us. We are in Messiah. And that's a much more beautiful thing altogether, isn't it? One of my favorite verses in the Bible, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. Let me go back and read verse 5 before it. It says, Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> he did it not because we were good enough, but because He chose to. If he did it because we earned it, then we couldn't keep a hold of it. But he did it because it was the good pleasure of his will. Why? To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. And you know who the beloved is? That's Jesus Christ. And the reason why I'm accepted in him today is because he loves his son and I'm in his son. And just as we talked about a little while ago, you you can never really come to hate your children. <laughs> you might eventually come to hate the mother or the father of your children, right? <laughs> or to get very angry with them. But as far as God is concerned, I'm in His Son. And it doesn't mean that you don't discipline your children. That's right, that's right. But uh, you're accepted within Jesus Christ. Now, that's such a powerful truth with regard to what salvation is. God can never not love me because He loves me for His Son's sake. And uh, His love will never turn away from me because it wasn't something that I earned. I can't do anything bad enough to make it stop because it's not for my sake that He loved me anyway. And what a wonderful, blessed thing that is that the mercy of God is poured out to us in that way that He offers us not just a chance to earn ourselves back into His good graces because we never could. He gives us the opportunity to be judicially placed in the body of His Son. We are the body of Christ today, right? And He loves us for His sake. Now, that ought to put to rest a lot of the worries that Christian people have. I, I find some Christian people that spend their lives tormented about whether or not they're good enough to be saved. And it can make you miserable. Understand this. You're not saved because of how good you are. You're saved because of how good He is in your place. Now, the flip side of that, some people will say, well, <laughs> then I'm released from all duty or obligation to serve Him. If that thought enters into your mind, we have to raise the question of whether you ever really got born again. We serve Him not to be saved. We serve Him out of gratitude because He has saved us. And, uh, well, what a wonderful position we are in. God loved Israel so much that He could never let them go, and will never let them go, because of His choice in choosing Jacob and the fact that He intended to bring His promise to pass uh, to all nations through Him. But we're even in a higher position than Israel was. We are actually in the sun. And uh, so anyway, back here in Hosea chapter 11, <laughs> let, me, let me go on a little further. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. So when he calls them out of Egypt, he's not just calling the nation, he's calling the Messiah as well. They're all coming out of Egypt. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed unto Balaam and burned incense to graven images. Now, notice this. We switch back from him to them. <laughs> okay? <laughs> and, and so he says, as they called them. And notice the parallel. It said, I called my son out of Egypt, but these other nations are calling my people to other things, and they're following. That's the problem. They sacrificed unto Balaam, burned incense to graven images. I taught Ephraim also to go, taking them by their arms, but they knew not that I healed them. Isn't that a sad picture? <laughs> He's healing the nation, but they, they don't know it. They have no idea how much more judgment they would have already borne or how much more difficulty they would have already borne if God had ever let them go. He says, I drew them with cords of a man, with bands of love. And I was to them as they that take off the yoke on their jaws, and I laid need unto them. Now, you see how gentle God has been with His people. 
they deserved a whipping, <laughs> right? But instead, he takes the cords of love. They didn't. They had no fear of God. He takes the cords of a man or bands of love and he draws them instead of whipping them. You know, God doesn't enjoy judging those he loves. He chastens us. I don't think God gets any joy out of chastening us any more than you parents get joy out of punishing your children. You do it because you're concerned about them. You do it for their good. But you don't enjoy it, right? And so he doesn't want to judge his people. He'd rather draw them if they'd be drawn, but they won't come. Now, look what he says here in verse 5. And remember that backdrop of what we talked about a while ago in verses in chapters 8 and 9 where he talks about how they'll return to Egypt. But now he says, he shall not return unto the land of Egypt. <laughs> he said, I'm not going to send him back down there. But the Assyrian shall be his king because they refuse to return. He says, I, I won't send you down there into Egypt. I won't put you back in that bondage anymore, but you will have to suffer the, uh, the rule of the Assyrians. And the sword shall abide on his cities and shall consume his branches and devour them because of their own counsels. Right? It's their own fault. They talk themselves into all this nonsense. And so they'll have to be punished. And my people are bent to backsliding from me. Though they called them to the Most High, none at all would exalt him. And you see the, the grief of the Lord in these verses, don't you? He's tried everything he can, short of judgment, short of severe judgment to bring the people back to him. He's drawn them, he's given them prophets, and with all the prophets he's given them to instruct them in the way to go, still they listen to their own counsels. They're listening to the instruction they get from the other nations about following other gods, and he says they're bent to backsliding from me. Now, that's, a, that's kind of an interesting picture, isn't it? The, when the Bible talks about backsliding, we probably should say a word about this. Some people use that word backsliding to mean that you've been saved and that you've lost your salvation. Uh, it's not really what it is. And the New Testament never uses the word backsliding. It's an Old Testament word. But backsliding in the Scripture, there's an other scriptures talk about a backsliding heifer. Okay, so if you, we're talking about livestock here. And uh, there's, there's two ways that an animal can backslide. One is because it's on a steep hill and it's muddy, <laughs> right? And it's trying to get to the top, but it's sliding back down. And the other is because you're trying to lead it or guide it somewhere and it's leaning away from you <laughs> so that you can't pull it and it'll slide backward. Now, notice here, my people are bent to backsliding. <laughs> that is, they're not trying to get to the top of the hill. They're doing this on purpose. Their desire is not toward God. They've set their will against him, in other words. And though they called them to the Most High, they have all these prophets that he sent to call them to the Most High, none at all would exalt him. They wouldn't worship him. They wouldn't come to him. But then look what he says in the next verse. And this is maybe the most touching verse in the whole book of Hosea. He says, How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? He says, I can't, I can't let go of you because you're the one I chose. And you're the one I loved. We saw back there earlier in chapter 2 where he talked about he would take them out into the wilderness and allure them <laughs> and treat them just like they were pure and clean and had never done anything wrong, just like he's going to start the courtship all over again because his love for them is so great that in spite of all their sin and all their wickedness, he won't let them go. Now that's real love, isn't it? The... Love cannot be tested with someone who is always acting like they should, right? Or acting the way you would like them to. You can't find out whether you love somebody if they always do what you want. If they are only doing your will, then it may be that you just love yourself <laughs> and they happen to be doing what you want. But when you can love the person who is hateful to you, who is spiteful to you, that's real love. And that's what God does, doesn't He? Now, I'm afraid we've kind of forgotten that a little bit in our churches these days. 
I don't think you hear love talked about as much as you used to. And frankly, in a lot of churches, and I don't think you have that problem here, but in a lot of churches, you don't find love practiced as much as you used to. Uh, there's a lot more rivalry and bitterness and pride and and uh, puffery, <laughs> all that sort of thing, showmanship and ambition. But it's hard to find real genuine love. The people who, uh, well, th- there's a lot of instruction in the New Testament about this. Uh, love is the pinnacle of the Christian faith. It's the capstone. And I've talked some about that before. I'm not going to forsake a time look at it here tonight. But in Second Peter chapter 1, there's that list of things we're supposed to add. And you start at the bottom. Faith is the foundation, right? Faith is the foundation of everything. But the capstone is charity. That's the last thing you add. And the Bible calls it the bond of perfectness. And the truth is, if we don't love one another, it doesn't matter what else we've done. We haven't gotten very far, have we? And we live in a day where people find it so easy to just get angry with one another in our churches today uh, <laughs> it's kind of a strange thing we, we don't have church fights like churches used to because now when people get upset they just leave <laughs> and they don't come back and there's not much love in that is there really God looks at these people who have disobeyed him every way they could and he says how shall I give thee up and that's how we ought to look at each other in the church shouldn't we even when we offend one another and we have to forbear one another. Forbearing one another in love, that's a scriptural expression you don't hear too much anymore, right? We ought to look at one another and love each other so much that we say, how, how shall I give thee up? Because that's my brother and that's my sister. This is to me like this, verse 8, is the same as the beginning of the book. When Hosea was going to... Yeah. It's our reservation. And that's exactly... God's telling us here... That's right. That's uh, that's exactly what we're supposed to do. That's how he loved us. That's the model for us. That's how he told Hosea to love Gomer. That's how we're supposed to love one another. And uh, that's what he says to them. He says, how shall I make thee as Adma? How shall I set thee as Zeboim? Mine heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. Now, We've got a few minutes left here, so we can talk about Adma and Zeboim. Extra credit to anybody who knows who Adma and Zeboim are. That's right. They were destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, that's kind of an interesting story back there. They, they're mentioned in Genesis chapter 14. Uh, you remember when uh, Lot got captured in a battle and Abram had to go rescue him? That's right. There were uh, four kings that came against uh, the, the kings of the area where Lot was. There was a king of Shinar, a king of Elisar, a king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations. And uh, they were big, powerful kings, right? They had big armies. And they come, across, they come against these little kings down in the area where Lot was. And in verse 2 of Genesis 14, it says, These made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. So they had these five kings. So everybody remembers Sodom and Gomorrah. But Adma and Zeboim were in there too, and Zoar. Now, the funny thing is that uh, a couple of chapters later, when God actually destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, he doesn't mention Adma or Zeboim. And we wouldn't even know that they got destroyed with them, except over in Deuteronomy chapter 29, he mentions it. And it's interesting that it comes up in Deuteronomy chapter 29, because that's a very important scripture with regard to the covenant that God has with his people that is sort of the backdrop to the whole book of Hosea, the broken covenant of marriage. Because as they're coming into the promised land, then, and they've had the law, remember in Deuteronomy, they have the law read over to them again. And here in chapter 29, and... uh, 30, these chapters here toward the end of the book, we have this pronouncing of blessings and cursings and all that sort of thing to the people. Blessings if they're obedient to God when they get into the land. Cursings if they're disobedient to God when they get in the land. And uh, down here in chapter uh, 29, I'm not going to read the whole section, but let me 
maybe start here in verse 18. It says, Lest there should be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turneth away this day from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. Now, I think we would have to, uh, we would have to consider that in Hosea's day, not just one man or woman or a family, but this whole northern kingdom was guilty of this, weren't they? They turned away from the Lord their God to serve the gods of these nations. And it begins to talk about all the penalties that will come on them, but let me skip down to verse 23. And it says, And that the whole land there is brimstone and salt and burning, that it is not sown, nor beareth, nor any grass groweth therein, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in His anger and in His wrath. Now, he doesn't mention, by the way, the fifth city, Zoar. Do you remember what happened at Zoar? That's where Lot ran off to after the other cities got destroyed. That was the only one of the five cities that didn't get destroyed, and that's a whole other story for another time. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, yeah, he departed and fled to Zoar. It was called a, a little place or a small place. Anyway, it's interesting, isn't it, that you never hear Adma and Zeboim actually mentioned in Genesis when he tells the story of how they were destroyed. But once you get down here, they are mentioned, and they pop back up in the book of Hosea in chapter eleven. And uh, you wonder why he mentions Adma and Zeboim instead of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Because Sodom and Gomorrah are the ones everybody remembers. But in a sense, Adma and Zeboim are even worse, aren't they? Because at least people remember Sodom and Gomorrah. (laughs) Nobody ever talks about Adma and Zeboim. And there may be something more to it than that. Um, It may be that the southern kingdom of Judah as the one who was more prominent and the one who would later also be punished by captivity in Babylon and as the better known kingdom, they might fall in the role of Sodom and Gomorrah and the northern kingdom takes the role of Adma and Zeboim. Anyway, what he says is, how shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adma? How shall I set thee as Zeboim? He won't do it. He'll punish them severely. He'll let them go off into captivity. But they'll never get the fire and brimstone, though in the covenant he made with them, that was certainly his right to do so. There's always be a remnant, yeah. He had he had every right to wipe them out. It was in his covenant. He'd put it down in the book. But thank God his grace is greater than his law. And he wouldn't do it because this is his nation, this is his people, this is his wife, this is the mother of his son, biologically speaking. And he won't put her away. And so he goes on and says in verse 9, I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in the midst of thee, and I will not enter into the city. (laughs) What an expression that is. He says, the reason I won't do it is because I am God and not man. And I don't know if there's a man on earth that could have the grace that God had under these circumstances. Now, Gomer had done a terrible thing to Hosea. But what Gomer had done to Hosea pales in comparison to what this nation has done to God. Because he has provided everything for them. He's blessed them abundantly for centuries. Like he has the United States. Yeah, that's a good point. Like he has the United States. And yet the nation turns away from him. But he says, I won't turn away like a man would, for I am God and not man. And there's a lot in that. One is he has grace and mercy and love on a scale that no man has. Another is that in the end he is in charge. (laughs) And he will handle his business as he chooses to handle it. And if he doesn't want to enforce the provisions of the covenant to their punishment, well, he doesn't have to. (laughs) He can show grace if he chooses. And that's what he says he will do. He says, They shall walk after the Lord. He shall roar like a lion. When he shall roar, then the children shall tremble from the west. And here we're getting into end time prophecy because he's talking about recalling the nation. Remember when he comes the first time, he comes as a lamb. When he says he'll roar like a lion, we're talking about his second coming. We're talking about events that haven't happened yet. And he says, Then the children shall tremble from the west. Yeah, that's the interesting thing, isn't it? That uh, the the greatest 
center of population for Jewish people in the world outside of Israel is the United States of America, which is the West, right? And he says, now there are Jews in all nations of the world almost today, but he emphasizes that they'll come from the West. And he says, they shall tremble as a bird out of Egypt and as a dove out of the land of Assyria, and I will place them in their houses, saith the Lord. Now, you may remember uh, back a few chapters ago that he called them, this is in chapter 7, verse 11, he says, Ephraim also is like a silly dove without heart. They call to Egypt, they go to Assyria. And we talked about that at the time, that the reason that dove was so silly was because it didn't pay attention where it was going. It just ran right into the snare, the net. And so they went, put themselves in back in captivity. But he says, they'll tremble as a bird out of Egypt, as a dove out of the land of Assyria. They're not a silly dove anymore. <laughs> because when the lion calls them, they're coming home. And they're not headed for the snare anymore because he's torn down all the snares when he comes again. There won't be any more snares for Israel to fly into anymore. And he's taken all that out of the way, and he says, I've placed them in their houses, saith the Lord. I'm going to bring them home out of their captivity and put them back where they belong. And thank God for his mercy and grace that he intends to show toward Israel. He's going to return them home someday. That's his promise. This northern kingdom never has really been reconstituted as it should be, but it will be one day. Well, the next verse uh, is a bit of a downer, but it's <laughs> for the sake of finishing out this chapter before we go on, let's read it anyway. Ephraim compasseth me about with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah yet ruleth with God, and is faithful with the saints. Now, I'm not really sure why this verse didn't get included with the next chapter, really, because this is what we're starting to talk about again in the next chapter. He's going to go into some more about the details of what Ephraim has done. But he points out something interesting here. We're going to talk more next week, Lord willing, about the lies that Ephraim has gotten into. But he points out that at this time, Judah yet ruleth with God and is faithful with the saints. That is, the northern kingdom had not yet gone into the apostasy that they would later on. And uh, so at least that part of the nation still was faithful. And that's important to point out here because this is why the northern kingdom will be judged at this time and the southern kingdom won't. Uh, remember what happened when the Assyrians came against the northern kingdom. They conquered it. They actually tried to conquer the south at that time, but Hezekiah was the king, and he was the one who went to the temple and prayed. And so they couldn't conquer the southern kingdom. But we'll stop there, and Lord willing, we'll start in verse 1 of chapter 12 next week, and it will talk more about what's wrong with Ephraim and the lies that they've gotten into.